some of you all standing like we're going to do worship next. <laughs> you notice the platform is incredibly empty. So Michael texted me early this morning, and he got hit with a flu last night. And so he started pounding down Advil at 3 in the morning. And he sent me a text at 7 and said, it's just not working. I, I can't get my fever to come down. So we were left with a choice. Either I could lead the worship team, <laughs> or we get the worship team in the morning off. And so that's what we chose to do. So it'll be shorter service, and we're just going to jump right into the teaching. And I'm going to ask you to go to Genesis chapter 6 this morning, if you would. I'll pray with you in just a minute. But Genesis chapter 6, some of you recognize that immediately when you hear that as being the story of Noah. And this is the story of the flood, for sure, in Genesis 6. But here's what we're going to do this morning. Uh, we're going to contrast both Noah and Abraham against our present day. We're going to look at the story of Noah. We'll look briefly at the story of Abraham and talk about current circumstances. Here's something I, I wrote for Facebook this week and uh, Sam posted to our Facebook page. Um, the conclusion I've come to as working through this series, uh, probably not one that's new to you, but here's the thought behind it. Every single person on this planet, every single human being has the opportunity to move closer to God or further away from God. The action that determines what they're going to do is based on what they believe about God. We've said that for a long time at New Hope. What you believe about God determines what you do next. It's, it's the action. What am I going to do with what I understand about God? Well, that's what we're, in essence, going to look at this morning. Every person on earth has an opportunity to move closer to God or further away from God, and it's always based on what they believe about God. I want to pray with you, but before I do, here's a component of what we're going to talk about this morning related to faith. It's in 1 Peter, look with me on the screen, 1 Peter 1.8. It says this, though you have not seen Him, you love Him. And though you do not see Him now, but believe in Him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, catch this, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. It doesn't get any bigger than that, right, church? That's the biggest issue. This is going to be participatory this morning, so if I'm asking, you can respond. I can feel free. See, it doesn't get any bigger than that, right, New Hope? That, that's pretty big. The salvation of your soul obtaining as the outcome of your faith, you don't have to go to hell. You can go to heaven. Obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. So I'm going to be asking this question. Do you believe this morning what God declares or what culture says? Let's go to prayer. Father, we come before you this morning with a, a kind of a boatload of material to push through with the story of Noah and Abram, and, and we want to understand, God, how and why it was written down and how it applies to our life. But for us, the bigger issues we leave here today is what we believe about what you say and how that directly translates to our action. We understand that what we believe about you determines what we do, so we ask that you would shape our thinking right now, form our thoughts with the work of the Holy Spirit, and teach us. That's what you promised that you do. Teach us through your word and illuminate our minds so we really do have understanding around these very complex issues. God, we ask for that because you, you love us and you want us to know you're a communicator. 
guide us now. We ask that in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So, so check that last part. You obtain as a result of your faith the salvation of your souls. Do you believe what God declares? Do you believe what God's saying or some skeptic's view? Let's, let's boil it down into the real world. Do you believe what God declares or do you believe the person in the cubicle next to you at work? Do you believe what God declares or your fellow student in the hallway? Do you believe what God declares or the person who's sitting across from you at the table when you're sharing coffee together? Do you believe what God declares or do you take a national poll about what you believe? This is really important as we talk about the things we've been looking at in creation versus evolution and Satan and fallen angels and demons and what God declares about you and why is this planet broken? This is a big issue. Let me remind you of a biblical definition of faith, and this is something we've shared here a lot at New Hope, but look with me on the screen at what faith really is. Faith is believing what God has revealed. Do you want a simple way to remember it? That's what it is. Faith is believing what God has revealed. And you hold in your hands this morning, if you have your Bible open, maybe it's on your phone, what God has revealed. Faith is believing what He has revealed. And so when it comes to understanding what God has declared about creation and what He's declared about Satan and why are things so busted up on this planet, it's all about believing His Word versus the world. And especially that's true when it comes to believing what God has declared about you this morning, that you obtain the salvation of your souls because of your faith. So let's take the events of Noah. With that thought in mind, let's dive into Genesis chapter 6, and you very likely know the story. But what I want you to feel here this morning is the weight of it. Imagine the dilemma that Noah is up against. Imagine you're Noah. Do you believe what God has declared when He says He's going to obliterate the planet? He comes to Noah and says, I'm going to bring an apocalypse upon this planet like has never been seen. And I'm going to wipe out all living flesh. What do you do if you're Noah? That is exactly the tension that Noah felt. How do we know that? Because he's human. He's just like us. So the thought process can be like this. God, I hear what you're saying, but I see no scientific evidence for it. There's never been a rainstorm on the planet, God. Remember what we read last week that God used to water the surface of the planet with this underground sprinkling system? There's a mist that rose up from the ground. So logically, you could say that there's, there's no empirical evidence. I see no scientific evidence that you're going to flood the earth. Why should I believe that? So Noah has a choice, just like you have a choice. Go with me to Genesis 6, verse 5. Then the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. The Lord was sorry, and the, the word nachem there is a Hebrew word. I'll explain that in a minute that he had made man on the earth, and he was grieved in his heart. The Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, from man to animals to creeping things and to the birds of the sky, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So that particular day, it's great to be Noah, right? Like, yes, I got my ticket punched. So he's living a life that's really pleasing to God. But he's among neighbors who are wildly wicked. 
So we find in the Bible, he's got true faith. He's going to believe what God is choosing to reveal. And we're going to keep coming back to that thought this morning. The historical account of the flood gives every indication of something that was very carefully written, and it's intricately complex. I don't know if you've spent much time with it, but it is full of details. It's the cause of the flood that we want to get into today. What's the cause of it? Well, we saw last week. The cause of the flood is directly tied to the events of Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. You've got the fall of man and the rebellion of man, and as a result of the rebellion, man has obtained something. Man has obtained a knowledge, a knowledge of good and evil. God says, don't eat of the tree. If you eat of the tree, you're going to die, and the tree is called the knowledge of good and evil. And they choose to eat of it, and they obtain this knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil. What are they going to do with that knowledge? Well, in chapter 1, we see this recurring expression in which God keeps saying, I look and it's good. Day 1, it's good. Day 2, it's good. Day 3, it's good. Day 4, it's good. Day 5, day 6. Day 6, it's very good. But now he comes forward and we see that he says it's not so good. Genesis chapter 6, it's wicked. It's not good anymore. It's It's evil. Look at, with me at this word on the screen, the word raha. Um, Stephen, let me ask you, is that me making all that crackling noise? Yeah? Okay. I'll blame it on the sport coat. We're going to get heated up now. Okay. So the word ra. Look at the, the word ra and the way that it's defined. Exceedingly great wretchedness. Have, have you ever known that? Have you ever met someone like that? I haven't. I want you to see the descriptors that the Bible uses because it's amplified in the King James Version of the Bible. Look with me on the screen at the King James Version. It's, it's an old translation of the Bible, but look at the way it says it. Every imagination, every conception in the mind, every thought of the heart was only evil continually. We're talking 24-7. Seven days a week, 24 hours a day, all their thinking is wretched thoughts. Now, that's especially poignant when Jesus says, in the last days on this planet, as it was in the days of Noah, so will it be in the coming of the Son of Man. I've never seen things like that. I don't even know anybody who thinks that way 24 hours a day. Maybe you do, but I, I don't. And it gets really intense when Jesus says what he does. So we've got this extremely dark picture that's being painted. This environment that Moses is describing is nothing anybody wants to be part of. So man has this set of choices. Do I take this newfound knowledge, the knowledge of good and evil, and do I use it to pursue God and go closer to God? Or do I use it to fulfill my inner urges and the things that I want? And it leads to an excruciatingly painful statement in Genesis 6.6. 6. Look with me on the screen again. The Lord was sorry that He had made man. An old translation actually says it hurt God's heart. His heart was in pain. So how do I understand this? 
We're looking at something that says at one point God is pleased with everything, and then you transition over to find out that God is grieved with something. Now, a person who's not familiar with the Bible, and maybe that's you this morning, maybe you're new to church, you might read that part about God being sorry and say, well, that looks to me like God makes mistakes because he's apologizing. How do I understand that? And I've had people approach me over the years about that. Maybe you have too. Um, some individuals have come up to me with the book of Kings, First Kings open where it says God is sorry that he made Saul king over Israel. Well, here you find it in Genesis. God is sorry. Is this saying God has made a mistake? What do I do with that? Well, a maturing believer is going to read that and say, well, well, let's see, how would you respond, New Hope? You're here in January when it's 12 degrees outside, you don't have to be here. Let me ask you, how would you respond? Is, is God capable of making a mistake? No, I don't sound quite as convinced. Uh, most maturing believers would say, impossible. And maybe that's you this morning, you just didn't want to articulate it. You would say, it's impossible. God does not make mistakes. He's perfect. But many people can't actually respond to that question knowing why does it say he's sorry then. Well, let me help you with it. The term sorry that God is being used of here is not suggesting that God made a mistake, and it's not suggesting that he regrets his actions. So let me help you understand it. Because God doesn't ever change according to the Bible, right? Malachi, look with me on the screen, Malachi 3.6. For I, the Lord, I do not change. I am the Lord, I do not change. In other words, I don't need a redo. I don't have to go back and do things over again. Isaiah actually amps it up when he says this in Isaiah 46.9. I am God declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will do all my pleasure. None of us can say that. God accomplishes everything that he sets out to do. So how do I understand this? Because I agree with you. God cannot make mistakes according to the Bible. How do I answer that question? Well, I told you the word that's used there is nachem, a Hebrew word. And let me show you the definition. It's in your notes this morning, by the way. And, and if you're interested in texting in questions, the phone number, the Google phone number is in your notes also this morning. If you want to text in questions during this, we'll have plenty of time for that. So nachem, it means to sigh. To, to breathe strongly. Now, link that with the other Hebrew word that's used in the same sentence where it says God felt pain in his heart. He's, he's grieving. And that particular Hebrew word is atzab, and, and it's actually talking about being in grief. Now, link these two together. I can be sorry that a friend of mine has an illness. I can be sorry that a friend of mine might have terminal cancer but I'm not responsible for the cancer. I'm not saying I'm responsible for it, but I can be sorry in my heart. Now, that's one component of it. Here's another component. As a parent, I've given very clear directives to my children when they were younger, expecting a certain outcome. If you're a parent, you know this feeling. Whether your children are still at home or they're adults, there's clear expectations of behavior. And when your child does something other than the clear expectations, what's your first response as a parent? You feel the sigh. You draw in a big breath and you let it go out because you want to check yourself before you say what you shouldn't say. There's a big sigh. 
And so we start linking this emotion together that God's having in this moment. God is troubled and he's grieved here by man's wickedness, not because of what he did, but because of what we did, what humanity has done, because of the actions. God didn't knock over the cookie jar. God said, don't get into the cookie jar. But the cookie jar gets knocked over and it gets broken and it's spilled all over the floor and there's the parental sigh. You notice that God's feeling deep emotion here? Scripture says He sings loudly over you with joy, but He also grieves greatly when His creation does things other than what He wants them to do, and He's grieving because the humans are consistently making decisions that are causing them to suffer. So what did we learn last week? Well, at creation, He granted free will. He gave every one of us free will, and He grants the possibility, the real possibility of evil And they choose evil instead of choosing God. Now, somebody who's new to church might say, well, that looks like God set them up then, and He tempted them. Can God tempt anyone, church? No. Scripture actually says in James 1, God does not tempt anyone. And it says this in 1 John 1, 5, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So how do we understand this? Mankind's exercising their free will, and they choose what's evil, and hence... God has sorrow that man has chosen poorly. But here's where it gets bright. Verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. If you get time later today, read verses 9 through 12, and it'll tell you why. Because there's this contrast going on between his righteous behavior and the world being really wicked 24 hours a day. So it's not that Noah is better than anybody else. He's not better than anyone else. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right, church? Okay, I told you this is going to be participatory this morning. Think Romans, Romans 3.23. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, right? That's what Scripture says. There's none of us that is righteous apart from God. We all have sin. So Noah is not better than anyone else. Here's what's different about him. He believed God when others refused to. So we got a guy who's living a life of obedience, and he's believing what God has revealed. Now, we would say this about obedience. Obedience is not fun in the moment, is it? All right? It yields a great outcome, but it's not fun in the moment. Those of you who are into physical discipline, you understand the discipline is not fun It's not fun when your friends are eating chocolate cake at 8.30 at night, and you can't, but it yields a great outcome. So we've got that going on with Noah here. The obedience is not fun, but ultimately it's incredibly rewarding. And you should be noticing, he's not making his own plan to fix things. He's not sewing his own fig leaves together. He's going to carry out God's plan, and he's going to build the ark because he's believing what God has revealed. Now... You've hit a critical part in this study. If you've been working through this for the last couple weeks, the things that Rich has written about in this last week especially related to the ark, you've hit a point in which you have to ask yourself the question, do I believe what God has revealed in His Word about the ark? Especially when you read what Rich quoted from Wikipedia in the study guide this week. Wikipedia, if you're not familiar with it, it's an online encyclopedia in which it makes a really blatant statement. There is no geological evidence for a global flood. 
And it goes on to say, there is no archaeological evidence for an ark. Well, I would say, on contraire, there is geological evidence for a global flood. You just have to look. You have to have eyes to see. Not to mention the seashells that are on the Tibetan Plateau at 20,000 feet and literally are on the mountaintops all around the world. There are seashells deposited and nobody can explain how they got there. They come up with theories, but they don't know how they got there. Well, I have an idea how they got there. But I'll go one step further with you. In 2005, Dr. Mary Schweitzer, who is a professor from the University of North Carolina at Raleigh-Durham, she's a paleontologist. She took her team to Montana and they were involved in a dig. In the midst of their dig, they discovered a T-Rex, a Tyrannosaurus Rex buried in 20 feet of compressed mud. Now, that's not extraordinary in itself, but what they discovered as a result of the dig was extraordinary. It continues to send the science world reeling to this very day, people trying to come up with theories. Because as they extricated the T-Rex from the soil, they took it back to Raleigh-Durham, they took it into the labs, and they began dissecting the bones. They discovered that inside the bones was viable red cell blood tissue. To which when Dr. Mary Schweitzer was told, Dr. Schweitzer, we have tissue inside the T-Rex, she was heard to say, what? That's not possible. These things went extinct 65 million years ago because they're approaching it from an evolutionary standpoint. So she said, test it again. 27 times they tested it. Look it up yourself. You can still see it online today, the, the, the photos of the red blood cells. They still have it in the lab today. Stretchy red blood cell tissue. And science around the world is left saying, what? How can something that went out of existence millions of years ago still have viable red blood tissue. This looks like it only died thousands of years ago, not to mention it was buried in 20 feet of mud. What do you do with that? Well, there's all kinds of theories. You want to look them up? Look them up yourself. But I have a theory. It's called the Word of God, and God said something specific about what He did to all flesh on the planet of the earth. Go back with me to the story, verse 13. Then God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence because of them, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. Notice there's no negotiating going on on Moses or Noah's part here. There's no complaining. Scripture says he does exactly what he's asked to do. So Noah follows God, exactly what God's plan is, and in so doing, he enters into the covenant that God made with him. Did you ever notice as you read the story of Noah, maybe you haven't spent a lot of time with it, but there's a lot of details there. You get to learn how wide the ark was, how tall the ark was, how long the ark was, how did he feed all of those animals. It's all in there. Did you ever notice when you read the story of the building of the tabernacle during the time of Moses, all of the details, how long, how wide, how deep? Why do we get all the details? Because God wanted us to know that these godly individuals went about their obedience to God's will with a dogged determination, that they were going to do exactly what God had asked them to do. In other words, they obeyed God with all their heart, with all their mind, with all their strength, Scripture says, because they believed what God revealed to them. That's what faith is. It results in action. 
So it says this in verse 22, Thus Noah did according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. Now, most people who are familiar with the Bible would say, I, I get that story. It's a precursor to Jesus. It makes sense to me. There's just one ark, right? God didn't tell Noah to build a fleet of arks. He said, build one ark. And he didn't say, make many doors into the ark. He said, put one door in. So there's one ark and there's one door. And that is a precursor to Jesus. Because Jesus himself said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. It's not very popular to hear in culture today. But Jesus went a step further and he said, no one gets to the Father except through me. So you live in a society in which people say there's many ways to God, and Jesus says, no, there's only one ark. I'm it. I'm the one door, and no one gets to life except through me. So Noah's family enters the one door, and they go into the one ark, and everyone else keeps going their own way, and they die in their sin. And as we watch this transition of Noah's life, we see there's this consistent pattern in here. He follows God when culture does not follow God. Go back into the story, chapter 7, verse 16. Those that entered male and female of all flesh entered as God had commanded him. And the Lord, note that, the Lord closed the door behind him. He closed it behind him. Then the flood came upon the earth for 40 days, and the water increased and lifted up the ark so that it rose above the earth. The water prevailed and increased greatly upon the earth, and the ark floated on the surface of the water. The water prevailed more and more upon the earth, so that all the high mountains everywhere under the heavens were covered. And the point is incredibly precise. Those who live are those who enter the one ark. Did you ever notice that God is the one that closes the door and seals it? Why so significant to believers in Jesus? Because we're told that God seals you for eternity. Amen? God says, I do that. I preserve you. I close the door and protect you for all of eternity. You see how this is all a precursor to Jesus. Well, in the same way that Noah is an example, quickly approaching on the horizon is Abraham. But let me go to one final verse with you on the Noah story. And we can dialogue about this if you want during Q&A or after the service. But watch this last verse, chapter 9, verse 18. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated, or we could say repopulated, because God has given the planet a reboot, if you will. A complete makeover, a brand new beginning. What will mankind do with this completely new makeover? How are they going to use the power of choice now? What are they going to do with this new start? So watch the flow. Man failed to obey God in the garden. Man fails to follow the knowledge of good and evil during the age of Noah. And then you come to the story of Babel. And it's only nine verses long, and Rich didn't spend a lot of time in it. We won't. We're just going to gloss over it. But in chapter 11, you get these nine verses about mankind going out and trying to build their own fig leaves, if you will. They put the tower up, and they say, we're going to reach to God. We're going to build a tower so high it's going to reach to heaven, and we'll show God we're going to make a city for ourselves. We'll make a name for ourselves. What did they do that was so wrong? They're living in rebellion, and God saw that if their plans were not interrupted they would succeed 
I don't know if you've ever noticed that verse before, but it says this, God saw all that they were doing and he said, behold, there is nothing they cannot do. You have that kind of power in your mind. God says there is nothing they cannot accomplish. So he has to disperse them for our own sake. God has to intervene again. And he does that exact same thing. He, his heart is continually towards restoration, so he intervenes. And once again, he moves to rescue us from ourselves. And the story of Babel ends very quickly. But on the horizon is Abraham, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household and go to the land that I will show you. So now God turns to a specific people group, to one individual who's not even a Jew. Did you know that? Abraham's not Jewish. He lives in southern Iran. He's in the Ur of the Chaldees. He's a descendant of Noah. And he lives in the land of the east, and God calls him from southern Iran to establish an entirely new nation. He's going to produce a group of God worshipers. And he says, Abram, I'm going to make you a light to all the world. So Abram is told to leave his life, and he's going to follow God. So check, check this. He's told to leave his family, his nation, his social circle. Now, Rich Bruce had a really interesting insight this week in your study guide about that very action. Look with me on the screen at his quote. In the ancient world, Abram's departure could have been seen, it could, could have been considered a hate crime against his family. In the mind of the ancients, Abraham would now be lending his strength to strangers and their gods. Feel the weight of the emotion around this. You're going to do what? Based on what, Abraham? Where's the scientific evidence? Where's the proof that God's calling you to a new land, that he's going to make a new nation? You're going to abandon us? You can feel the weight of the community, especially in the ancient world, moving against him. So God enters into a new covenant. First covenant was with Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis 3.15. I'm going to bring a deliverer one day, Adam, and he will crush the head of Satan. Then the next covenant God made was with Noah. Noah, I'm going to deliver you. I'm going to reboot the earth. I'm going to bring a new creation out of this. And here's the third covenant. I'm going to make a new nation, and I'm going to bless you. And the only thing he had to do was believe God. Look with me on the screen, Genesis 12, 3. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Did you know that's you, church? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, that's you. You're part of the family of the earth that has been blessed. Why? Because Jesus came directly from the line of Abraham. All the earth was blessed because Jesus came from the offspring of that nation. And all of the families of the earth will be blessed because Jesus came through that line. So you are part of the families of the earth. Now, he's not told anything about the country he's going to go towards, just that God's going to show him the way. And he doesn't argue with God. The Bible records he simply obeyed. And through his obedience, Israel becomes this powerful analogy of God's redemption. Now, we're not going to get into it this week. We'll look at it next week. But just note the things that God gave to them. 
Moving forward from this point in history, they're going to occupy the most strategic piece of land on the entire globe because God made a commitment to them. I'm going to put you right there in the heart of everything. And he gave them a code of laws, distinguishing them as the one worshipers of the one true God. And then he gave them a gift. He gifted them a sacrificial system. We'll look at that next week. Unfortunately, they took that and they tried to turn it into their own fig leaves again. We have that habit, that pattern, trying to make themselves acceptable to God. So let's just back up to Abraham for a second. Abraham's called the father of faith. Would you agree he's a person of great faith? Would you agree that Noah is a person of great faith? Okay. So we've got Abraham, a person of great faith. We've got Noah, a person of great faith. And you might look at them this morning, and you're sitting here in January in this warm building saying, my faith doesn't really cost me anything. They're great in their faith. I don't feel like I'm so great in my faith. I would argue differently with you, and I'm going to show you why. Let me ask you this question first. Do you think it always felt good to be Abraham? I don't think Abraham always liked what Abraham was feeling because his circumstances and his living conditions didn't really feel like he's being blessed. He's not always feeling like God's got his back. The same is true for Noah. Walking in faith means placing your trust in what God has revealed, even though you can't see the outcome of it. You don't know exactly all that's going to come from it, but you trust what God has said. So you're trusting God rather than trusting your senses. So Abraham had a choice. He could choose to believe God and take him at his word and move forward. Or he could stop and say, it's all a lie. There's no evidence for this whatsoever. God can't be trusted. I'm going back to my own country. I don't need this. What a mess I'm in. The writer of Hebrews actually spoke to this. Chapter 11, verse 15. And indeed, if they had been thinking of that country from which they went out, they would have had the opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Is that you this morning? Do you desire something better than this messed up planet that you live on? Do you look around and say, this place is really broken. I want something better than this. I know what the world offers, but I'd rather have a better city. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Today, you are free to choose whether you're going to receive God's plan or not. Just like in Noah's day, God's either going to be pleased by your plan or He's going to be grieved to the heart because he loves you that much. You're either going to please him or you're going to grieve him with the choice that you make. Let's just close out this thought before we go into Q&A with two examples from Noah and Abraham. Look with me on the screen at Hebrews 11.7. By faith, there's that big word. What's faith? Believing in what God has revealed. By faith, Noah being warned by God about things not yet seen. In reverence, he prepared an ark. Verse 8, by faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out, and he went out not knowing where he was going. What's faith? 
believing what God has revealed, even though you can't see the outcome. So Noah, like you, had a choice, and he chose to believe God, and he lived. Abraham, just like you, had a choice, and he chose to believe God, and God used him greatly. Joseph, Moses, Esther, Naomi, Ruth, Joshua, David, Philip, Thomas, they chose to believe God and lived. And their choice was, do I trust God? Or do I reject it because I can't see the outcome? That's what free will is all about. So we're getting ready to ask questions. I'm going to ask you a question. Has God declared a truth over you that goes beyond your feelings? Has God declared something about you that you have a hard time believing? Especially in light of what we talked about last week, when we know that Satan is the accuser of the brethren, and he constantly throws things up in your face like, that thing you did, there's no way you think God's going to forgive you of that. You, you think you're forgiven? But God says you are. Do you believe God, or do you believe the lie? Is there something that goes beyond your feelings that God has declared about you? You, New Hope, live by faith when you believe that God has forgiven you. When you believe that He has destined you for eternity, Jesus said, you guys are like Noah and you are like Moses. You want me to show you how you know that? Look with me on the screen. It says this in John 20, 29. Write it down in your Bible. Blessed are they who have not seen and yet believed. Isn't that great that God has declared that about you? Believed what? Believed that Jesus is the Son of God. Remember the conversation he's having with Thomas in the midst of that dialogue? Thomas had to actually see the physical evidence. But Jesus said, blessed are those living in 2019 going to New Hope Church who believe in me even though they haven't seen. So do you have a hard time believing that God has declared something over you even though you can't feel it? I'll let you wrestle with that. Let's see if there's some questions that were texted in this morning. Maybe some that you have occurring on your mind. There have been in the other two services. Go ahead, Stefan. Was the flood a mistake on God's part? Interesting. I'm, I'm wondering why someone came to that conclusion. How about if we have a conversation after the service, but I would say emphatically no, because God doesn't make a mistake. So I'm, I'm wondering why whoever's texting that is. Maybe it's somebody online is um, thinking that was a mistake. Um, I'll give opportunity. Do you want to verbally respond to it? Probably not. Okay. It's all right. Okay, we can talk about it afterwards if you want, but no, the flood was not a mistake on God's part. Let's go to the next one, Stefan. How did things become so corrupted by Noah's time? Was it that bad from the beginning? If so, what made God decide to destroy the earth just then? Ooh, we have really stepped into some deep water here. Okay. Um, if you go back later today to the very beginning of Genesis chapter 6, you're going to see that it says, the sons of God laid with the daughters of men. Sons of God in the Bible is a description for the fallen angels in Genesis 6. So you have demons who are involved in sexual activity. 
And right now, this is causing the fire <clears throat> firecrackers to go off in some people's minds. Like We talked about this last night, and it really exploded some thinking. When you understand that God had to purge the earth, there's more going on than just the corruption of mankind's behavior. But it plays into the warfare of Satan moving against the plan of God. So we talked last week about when Satan fell, that it was move, counter move, move, counter move. What could Satan hope to accomplish by corrupting the flesh on earth? He would destroy God's plan for sending a Messiah. If he could corrupt the flesh, he would do it. So Scripture says in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful, and they laid with them, and they produced the mighty men of old, the men of renown called the Nephilim. Read about it yourself later today, and you'll understand there's more going on in that question than you understood when you first asked it. It is really deep territory. So why did God need to purge the earth? Because he needed a perfect couple, Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives, to repopulate the earth. I'm thinking somebody's asking the question, did God make a mistake when he caused the flood? Because he came back later and said, I will never do that again. I put my rainbow in the sky as an example of it. But he did it specifically because the earth needed a restart if you believe what God has declared in His Word, that's what He declared. In order for Him to carry out His purposes and His plan of a Messiah coming, it was at that moment that He needed to do it. Let's go forward, Stefan. God expressed His intentions to wipe out mankind but saved humanity through Noah because He was obedient. Was the redemption of mankind not part of God's plan before He found favor with Noah? God says that he laid the plan for the redemption of mankind before the foundations of the earth. Actually, before even the fall of man, he had a plan that he was going to rescue because he's omniscient. He knows everything. So that means even before he created the earth, he knew that mankind was going to fall. So we have to take the, the rational thinking and saying, okay, then he obviously knew that he was going to have to flood the earth as well, which was part of the plan. It's a mystery. I, get, I grant you that. We can talk further after the service if you want. But yes, it was part of the plan to bring the flood. Do you have one more, Stefan? Okay. Or not. Oh, I like that. That's much better. Okay, well, the other ones aren't coming up. All right. If, you got, if you've got questions that didn't get posted, like last week, keep texting them in, and we're answering the questions after Sunday is done. We, throughout the week, we'll respond to questions. Here, here's the thought I want to remind you of before you go out the door. Every single person on this planet has the opportunity to move closer to God or further away from God. What determines that action is always based on what they believe about God. Faith is believing what God has revealed. So what you believe about God determines what you do next. You see how that fleshes together?
What you believe about God results in action. So carry this out the door with you this morning when you go. When God reveals His actions to you, your task is to determine, how am I going to respond to that? What am I going to do with what God has revealed? Because what you believe about God determines what you do next. If you want a dialogue after the service, let's do that. Let's close in prayer and we can end our time together as a group. Father, I thank you for what you've shown us in your word this morning about the incredible faith of Noah and Moses, and yet you said the same of us. We're blessed because we believe even though we haven't seen. I thank you for the reminders throughout the New Testament that you look at us that way. So we can gather together on a day when it's really cold outside as a body of believers and we can sharpen each other and we can question and know that you love us and you just want to draw us closer to you. Thank you for what you've shown us. And Father, that we have this extra time, I would ask that you move in our spirit to cause us to just hang around and linger, to enjoy the company of each other and not feel the rush to go out the door. But rather, let us just bask in the reality of what you've declared to be true, that we have obtained the salvation of our souls because of the faith and that faith comes from you. It's a gift. Thank you, Father. Thank you in Jesus' majestic name. And all God's people said, amen. Have a great week.